Okay, folks, um, let us begin. Who wants to volunteer? Which uh, facilitator would like to volunteer first? Not all at once now? Okay, we'll start with uh, Jeannie. Do you want to um, Our table had a question. Well, we were, we were talking about how, um, you know, it's really challenging to get faculty and students to come to an event like this, right? And so I was, w we were wondering if, um, if Matt or Meg, if you guys know of a really good model of how to get information <laughs> to a large community. My model's green and it's about this <laughs> big. Um, <laughs> no, that, I, I think that's been a, that, that clearly is a challenge because again, it goes back into who's responsible and what's my role and how do I do, you know, again, I'm a history professor. What in the world do I have to do with this? And it's like, I don't think I need it until I actually need it. And the problem is I don't know that I need it until it's sitting in my face. Um, and so there's not necessarily any incentive to participate and do this kind of thing. Um, from a student perspective, kind of, you know, what you were touching on before is, you know, students do talk to each other, so it's like, what education do I need? Like, a bunch of adults telling me something I already know. Um, so it's challenging, I think, from that. So I, I'm not sure there's a perfect model for doing this. Food is helpful for everybody. Um, <laughs> no, really, I mean, it's, it, you know, food is helpful for people, and then having it become something greater than just a conversation, because, you know, if we sit here and just talk, who cares? <laughs> you know, if we do something and something comes out of it at the end of the day and the students particularly feel like they're being heard and something good is coming out of it, more people are going to show up. Are there specific um, and accessible training models that you would recommend? I would actually like to um, add to this. Um, I know that Jefferson specifically, um, we have mandatory training for Title IX, sexual assault, that all freshmen have to complete before entering college. So I think that although, you know, of course, there are going to be some students that just click through it and don't really get anything out of it, you know, if we make something, some kind of training on um, suicide prevention and recognizing the signs mandatory, at least we have the peace of mind that we're putting something out there and there will be those students that really take this information to heart and go, wow, I've been looking for this, I can use this, this is what I need. And as far as a specific model, um, I know the Cognito model, um, the software that they have, where it's literally um, two people and they're having an interaction and you choose what to say and they tell you, oh, that was a good thing to say to that person, it was a bad thing to say and here's why. So I think having students do a model like that, that really, um, you're role playing a real life situation where a friend comes to you and says, hey, like I'm feeling this way. I think that could be really helpful. To that, you know, in the city of Philadelphia, um, part of my volunteer service to the city is I'm a mental health first aid instructor. Yeah. And mental health first aid is a curriculum that is for everyday people in the community. And it is just like first aid CPR, carries the same um, Good Samaritan clause. But it teaches you the steps to identify mental illness and how to walk someone through the process if they report to you or if you have a suspicion that they have a um, suicidal thoughts, um, how to get them to help. And so the city of Philadelphia has grant money and it's free to go to a mental health first aid training. And so it would be um, a great thing to, we can organize it, we can have them, we can, we can come, I can help train. <laughs> and it's a, it's a mission because the more we educate and the more people are equipped, 
to notice um, the symptoms of mental illness and be able to, uh, to have that conversation, the more people can get to the help they need. Mm-hmm. I think generally speaking, one thing that we've been trying to do um, is one of my staff members does it. She is on our social media. So we have an Instagram account. We're sending out emails. Our uh, workshops and different groups are on TVs around campus. We are trying to make more connections with faculty to get them to then refer the students to our groups or to our workshops. So I think another piece is just connection and getting people to see who we are, that we are pretty normal um, in that sense. There's pros and cons to all the trainings out there. And what I'll say is, in the interest of time, um, when we get to the point where you want to have a discussion about what you want to do, I'll be happy to tell you what the pros and cons of all of them are. I think it's fine. Mental health curriculum is wonderful, but it's very long. Um, and Cognito is wonderful too because it gives you the skill training piece of it, but it's very expensive. So there's pros and cons to all of them. Mm-hmm. And I, I think just one more thing to add for those of you who are teachers, I think it's always good to let your students know that <laughs> you care about them as human beings, right? But to obviously you do, but to make that very explicit in a statement where you say, I care about you, and I care that you do well in my class, but I also care about you as human beings, and I want you to thrive, and I want you to know that I'm here for you. And, you know, the story I told you in the beginning is a story I have repeated many times because I let people know I have lived through a suicide in my family, and it's been devastating. And if that's something you want to talk about, I'm here and I'll talk to you about it. If that's something you're considering, I'm here and I'm going to talk to you about it. So sometimes it's just offering up a little tiny piece of personal information that will register with people, even with your students who are on their cell phones and they might not (laughs) act like they're paying attention. But when they are in crisis, they might remember that you were the one who told them that you might be there for them. So I think that's a really good thing just to do as a unit is to let people know if you want to talk about this stuff, I'm here. Um, We had a really active table, so I have two comments and two questions. Mm -hmm. Um, One question is, what things should you mention or not mention to reduce copycat, um, the copycat phenomenon? Don't mention method. Okay. Yeah. You know, how somebody died by suicide is far less important than the fact that they died. That's okay. Um, and the message of what to say, I think a big part of that is that we don't care about and, you know, we want to talk with you and we want to be here to support you, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, another question was, what can high schools do to better prevent suicide in colleges? So is there a way to start the awareness um, and prevention awareness maybe sooner? Mm. Nicole, what do you think? Um, I think that supporting students in the transition um, from high school to college is very important. Educating them about the fact that it's not going to be the same. It is going to be very different. And that um, also to let them know that there are supports. Like like we said, in orientation, we get a packet about all of the different offices on campus. But to keep that before um, through Facebook or through um, connected services, to keep that before um, young people. But I think the transition um, period, it's not automatic. It's not like something switches in your brain and you know how to be a college student. You learn, and you learn most of the time by trial and error. 
So if we can um, support that transition, I think we'll be healthy. Hey, I, I agree with Nicole. Um, as a peer mentor, again, um, we work with the students during orientation. So while they're still at home and then continuing into their first semester of college, because that often is the hardest time for them because they are dealing with that transition. And to speak to your question about starting it in high school, I actually had a teacher say to the class, look, you will struggle. Everyone will struggle. It's a normal, expected thing. And that kind of takes away some of the, you know, oh, I am failing. I am not good enough to go to college. I'm the only one having this problem. When you have an adult say to you, this is normal. It's expected. And if they can share a story of even just a small way that they struggled, whether it was making friends, whether it was failing their first test, failing a class, just having someone say to you like hey this is normal and everyone's experiencing it whether or not they talk about it whether or not their social media looks like everything's great for them you know everyone does struggle so it's okay to talk about it absolutely mm. can, can i make a quick comment on this mm -hmm. I, I would actually argue that we need to start before high school mm -hmm. um because i think it's not so much about what do we do in high school to prepare them for college i think what you're talking about is absolutely essential like from that step but if we don't start earlier than that we're still missing something so there's a lot on social emotional development mm -hmm. there's a lot on resilience training in fact there's a thing called the good behavior game which is like a kindergarten first grade kind of thing and in a nutshell it's like how to be a good friend and how to like talk to your friends and be kind to one another and the data on this is incredible 30 years after this intervention in kindergarten first grade they found that 30 years later people that were exposed to this were significantly less likely to a make suicide attempts b have suicidal thoughts and c die by suicide and that was not the purpose of it at all hmm. what do you do in this game <laughs> That's some game. <laughs> you really want to know? <laughs> a little bit, yeah. Yeah, so, so yeah, it's like during regular class time and stuff like that. Like, there's some skills in terms of kids learning how to like be kind to one another and be reflective and those kinds of things. And literally during class time in kindergarten, first grade, the teacher says, "Okay, we're playing the game right now," and everyone then is focused on how to make kind remarks to each other and that kind of stuff. And they automatically start learning how to do this kind of stuff, and and it carries forward and like I said the data is just supply I mean yeah it's very very sounds like something we could use in other grades as well we yes. can <laughs> not just yes. kindergarten yes <laughs> so I have two additional comments from our um, members at the table mm -hmm. one is QPR training are there any plans for this for students and faculty and staff here at this university and the second comment is um, can we as a university look at the highest months for suicidal behavior which is sep September and October, and bring awareness um, during those months, and maybe even plan something, or do we plan something during May, which is mental health awareness month? Mm -hmm. So I'll talk about one piece, uh, I'll talk about both, but the first piece is uh, this past sem September, we did do an event where we um, sent out over 200 flowers with the tag with the suicide um, prevention hotline number on it, as well as our services. We had our residence life staff help us uh, to get it out to the campus. It was interesting because what happened during the day is that we actually had our counseling students come in and they had the flowers but didn't know it came from us. So it was nice and um, the idea of it was it to give two to Matt and he was to pass one on and continue to spread that message. So continue to do awareness, yes. Uh, as far as QPR, um, I am not aware that that is something. What is that? Can you just say in case people don't know? It, sure, it's a um, model for suicide 
um, assessment or intervention. It stands for questioning, refer, Referrers, refer. Yeah, refer. Yeah. And um, I think that really any of these models, the ones that Sima talked about and Matt, is that it's going to require the whole university to be involved. It can't just be coming out of the counseling center, um, the three-person show. It's got to be a buy-in from everyone to say, you know, we're dedicated to this, and this is what we are going to spend time and money and effort on, and everyone's going to do it. Um, so I am not aware, but I, I'm not I, I'm not someone with power. Um, so maybe some of the higher beings in the room do know that, and I don't. <laughs> uh, here, I, I'll make you a deal. Um, we will train trainers. If people here want to be QPR trainers on this campus, I know exactly where you can go to get trained, and I know people who will train you, and then you can train the masses here if you want. Um, and so the, the train the trainer program, there's a small fee associated with it, but it's not very much at all. Um, we're having a higher ed meeting, I can talk about this later, in, in State College in May, uh, focused on suicide prevention. And one of the things that we're doing is having the eight hour training of QPR trainers as a part of that. Uh, and then again, you take that back to your campuses and just disseminate, 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 and you could roll it out wherever you want. Mm -hmm. I can interrupt for a second. You know there's a survey on your table and it actually asks if you'd be interested in these kind of trainings and ask you for your email, because this will be part of the report we're making. If there's enough faculty and students interested in this, and of course, talk about this with your fellow students and faculty, not the only ones to be interested, obviously. And this passes on to administration that we are interested in this. That will help convince the powers that be, I'm sure. Mm -hmm. Is there another uh, facilitator? Warren, do you have any questions? I do. Oh, good. Hi. Um, so going back to transitions, well, we had, a, we had a question and a comment at our table. So the first is the question, going back to transitions, what can we do for graduate students or non-traditional students who aren't going through a freshman orientation? that we could do a lot and I think that again if we get into a QPR model it could be that something that is offered um, I think that our graduate students and our continuing uh, our CPS students are an important part of our community so I think that we've got to be a little bit more intentional about what we do provide for them um, and so yes I, it's it's on the radar it's something I want to continue to bring attention to so that's a good point So the comment was just that, um, like it's, we so appreciate having this robust discussion about suicide. Um, it's one aspect of mental health. And so really um, realizing that, like you said in your opening presentation, so many people are coming to college campuses with diagnoses already, with intensive um, treatment plans, with care. What, how can we better support those students? Because it seems like um, sometimes the, college counseling centers are set up really to handle crisis and crisis management. <laughs> I, I tried pushing this through Center City years ago um, and NSF failed, but there was some reluctance. You know, we do a lot of stuff when people come in for orientation, like they have to go through student health and turn in all their vaccination records and all these other kinds of things that are required just to actually be on campus here. And I always thought, you know, it'd be great to do some sort of behavioral health sort of check for students at that point in time where you have an opportunity then to engage people with counseling center folks there and present who can say, listen, looks like from time to time you get a little bit ang you know, anxious. I'm not saying you need to get counseling and stuff like that, but I just want to introduce myself and 
and I work down at the counseling center, and here's my card, and here's a number, and if you need anything, by all means, reach out you know, to me. So you have an opportunity to engage everybody when they come through, not forcing anything upon them, but I think that individual kind of connection with people is very different than the five minutes that they might get. I don't know how much you say at orientation here, but, you know, five minutes? Thir <laughs> 30 minutes. Oh, you get 30, great. Um, you know, that small window of time where there's some communication about it, but there's no individual contact that happens unless they tell you to do that afterwards. And so, um, you know, it's a bit of an honor to talk, but the point is, I think it's worth the investment to know that. And one thing that we did this past fall is we went into every first year seminar. So not only orientation, um, but it went into every first year seminar. So we got to see every first year student. And um, the classes were, I think roughly, are about 12 to 15 students. So it's a little bit larger than a one-on-one, -on -one, but the fact that they got to see us and we got 30 minutes of the first year seminar and we got to see the whole first year class is amazing. I think just putting a name to a face was a helpful piece. and. One thing that hopefully we'll begin to stress this coming orientation is that if you're connected to a provider, don't stop that connection because you're coming to school. Those mental health concerns are not just going to disappear. Um, if you have a psychiatrist back at home, try to stay connected. Um, it just don't drop them on your, you know, August 27th when you come to mm. college. So our <coughs> so our table kind of had a discussion that really is all revolving around usefulness, right? So that students and staff mix, and everyone really has a desire to want to be helpful and useful to people that may be in need. So I guess one of the questions is, well, how? Right? Is, there, is there a baseline of just what everyone should really know to, to help someone that might be in need? I think the key is to listen. Just listen. See what you're noticing, hear what your friends are saying or not saying. The majority of the way that we communicate is nonverbal. So look at how they're hanging their heads or what they're wearing, any of that. Those are important factors and pieces to pay attention to. Just listen. And I'll add just, you know, it, as we're listening, to tell the person what we're seeing. Mm. Um, observations come without judgment. So we're not saying you are, but we're saying I'm noticing. Mm. And so when we do that, it's showing that we are watching, we are careful, but that we're also concerned. And so I think listening and really speaking up is really important. Mm. I think asking people if they're okay, that's sort of the, you know, listening, is all of these things that you're saying is absolutely important, but at some point in time, we have to actually ask if the person is doing all right. And the challenge for us as adults is we actually stink at this. <laughs> um, you know, I mean, how many times have you gone to work and you've seen somebody that looks like they're having a bad day and you think to yourself, that person looks like they're having a bad day, but do you ever say, hey, how are you doing? I mean, yes, sometimes, but there's other times that you don't. Why? Don't want to burden that person. Or I, if I was that person, I wouldn't want them asking me, whatever it might be. So you have to ask if they're okay, starting the conversation. Then, of course, then when they say they're perfectly fine, you know, you're right on t target with this, which is, you know, here's why I'm concerned about you. And again, it's not passing judgment. It's uh, here's what I've noticed, and I'm worried, and I've been listening to you, and here's what I'm hearing. I think it, we hear very often the word fine in the way that I tell students about it, and I people are smiling in the room because I say it all the time, is if you look the word fine and write it down as feelings inside not expressed. So you say fine because you don't think I want to know exactly how you're feeling, or you're afraid to say that. And so when I challenge people that on that, my kids, my partner, everyone, everyone says, oh, not okay. Okay, I'm sorry. So it's a nice <laughs> way to, you know, challenge that piece of fine. 
one last comment, if I may. So um, we were speaking about the impact of social media, mm -hmm. um, tweets, retweets, posts, when someone maybe puts a meme up or they say something, you know, oh, I had a terrible day, I want to kill myself. Ha ha, or not ha ha. Mm -hmm. And what are kind of the next steps that maybe, should they be saying things, should they, how exactly someone <laughs> resident expert. <laughs> yeah, I think it just goes back to, you know, don't assume that someone's fine. It's definitely better to reach out and the worst thing that they could say is, you know, like, hey, that was a joke, mm. you know, versus you not reaching out and then, you know, they aren't fine and something happens. I think it's always better to just better safe than sorry. And then as to the role of social media as a whole, um, there's actually a term coming out of Sanford, um, the duck syndrome. I don't know if any of you are familiar with it, but basically you imagine a duck on the water and on the surface it's graceful, it's moving effortlessly, everything is so serene, everything seems fine. <laughs> but underneath the water the duck is paddling furiously. But you don't see that. You only see what's on the surface. So on social media people may look like they're having, you know, great fantastic lives, completely stress-free, you know. They're popular, they're getting straight A's, they're doing all these sports and co-curriculars, everything seems fine, but it's hard to know what's going on underneath. So also social media as a tool of comparison and saying, you know, I know that I'm struggling, but I see all of my friends on social media and their lives look great. So also not only just listening, but also talking, being not being afraid to say, I'm not fine. You know, today was actually a really hard day because that'll move towards normalizing, you know, the struggle that we all face. And I think I would add to that one thing, that if you do see something on social media that seems like the person is making a statement that they are about to hurt themselves, you have to mobilize whatever you can do to get either in touch with them. So, you know, I have a lot of people on Facebook that I barely know, and there was somebody who posted a message that very clearly was saying, I'm going to end my life. And I didn't really know this person. I tried to reach them, they didn't respond. So then I reached out to a friend who I knew knew him better and that friend like tracked down that person's mom and we just didn't even care. We were like, we're gonna track this person down and we did and it, he was in crisis. But I think it's, it's important to tell students like when you see something that doesn't seem right and you're really worried, it doesn't matter if that person's gonna be really pissed off at you the next day. It does not matter if you scare the heck out of their grandmom. You have to like reach everybody and mobilize that force and make sure that they are okay because the stakes are so high in that moment. Mm -hmm. And actually, I don't know if everyone is aware, but Facebook actually has um, mm -hmm. a button now that you can press when you see someone having a post, uh, they make a post that you think is concerning and you're not really 100% sure if they're okay, there's actually a button that you can click and I'm not exactly sure what the mechanism is, but I think it sends them a message, you know, anonymously, it's not saying so-and-so thinks you're in crisis, um, but they get an anonymous message with information about, you know, hotlines that they can call and additional resources, so that's a great way um, if you see something but you're not sure if you wanna say something, you're not sure what to say, to, you know, to put the red flag up and um, get that person help. Because a friend of yours was concerned about you. Right. Do you need help? And it gives you the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline number. And so you can click on that, it'll call it for you. It'll take you to a website depending on what 
getting a message from them. Right. And even if you think, like, you're someone in crisis, you get a message and you know someone cares. Someone saw this and I don't know who they are, but someone cares. And that could be what makes, you know, the difference for someone between choosing to kill themselves or not. Chris? Yes, well, we had uh, a number of themes that were actually addressed by the panel, but one of the themes that I'd like to mention coming forward, and this was brought again to my attention by the graduate students here, is the tremendous pressure that these students are under. And so regardless of the availability of programs, supports, the messaging, it's that what options are available to somehow reduce the pressure, not only for them as individuals, but maybe are there steps that the institution can take to help address some of the pressures that even the institution itself is even helping to reinforce. And um, one of the observations I think is best uh, presented by one of the uh, grad students who was making this statement. Hello, um, I'm the medical student um, at SCMP and I think that um, some interesting things that we've noticed is that um, we are told that we have a couple of free sessions and I think as people who are very debt conscious at the moment, um, feeling like these are sort of issues that are either long term to sort of resolve or to set up um, care with somebody, we're sort of receiving mixed messages. And then also um, we felt that our one of our most stressful weeks of the year was a wellness week that we had <laughs> um, actually. Most um, stressful? Yeah. Oh, that's um, awesome. Um, <laughs> because it just sort of reinforced the idea that um, you're expected to burn out at some point um, and uh, are there steps that we can take or steps that the university can take to sort of um, put into place things that allow us to set up care with people that are um, hopefully in mind of our an enormous amounts of debt that we are <laughs> slowly accruing. medical school stuff. Um, well, first of all, I'm sorry that Wellness Week was not so well. Um, <laughs> did you go to Mixer at the meter? <laughs> um, y you know, I, I think it, it's a real challenge, you know, and I think I it's not just the medical school debt issue, it's everybody. Um, and it's the structure in which services are given and the cost of doing those kinds of things and stuff like that. And I think um, it I think that's a message that has been heard. Um, I don't have a solution to it. Um, but I do know that there are some conversations, at least on the medical school level, of trying to solve this in a collaborative way with other medical schools in the area too. And so this is not a Jefferson issue and only a Jefferson issue. Um, you know, but we've done, let's just say it, it's good that you weren't here 15 years ago. Um, the culture has changed dramatically in the medical school, like very, very dramatically in the medical school where the idea now is that seeking help, yes, there's stigma around it, yes, you know, people are concerned about people finding out and all those other kinds of things, but the, the rate of help seeking is significantly higher than it's ever been. People are talking about um, support in ways that you wouldn't even whisper it before for fear that I would hear it and go tell the dean or something like that, um, which didn't happen, but you didn't know that. So I, I think it's a challenge. And then there's other issues when it comes to graduate students across the board too, which is that oftentimes they're in a different place in life than the undergraduate students. Some of them are married, some of them have children. Um, and so trying to fit in life with graduate school um, can be extremely 
um, challenging because here I have a responsibility to somebody at home and if I have children, then it's like, how do I do childcare and you expect me to be here until 10 o'clock at night in a lab or whatever it is that I'm doing? I mean, that's, that's a challenge, it's a cultural shift. Um, and I think, you know, to your point about how do you support students, it's, I mean, how do you create a culture in which students feel like they have some place to go to be them in the midst of something that's driving them? Because you know, a lot of graduate school feels like somebody else is telling you what to do, and a whole lot of them telling you what to do, and, and not feeling like they have a lot of choice around some of those things. And so putting yourself in a spot where you feel a little bit more empowered and autonomous in some of those things, I think, is really important. I think the mediating factor in this, especially as a graduate student now, is self-care. And I think there's a tendency to kind of, you know, you know, oh, self-care, like, it's not that important. But self-care is really a revolutionary act. And, you know, when we talk about, oh, I have so much stuff to do, I have to, you know, take care of the kids, I have to do my homework, X, Y, Z, you know, I don't have time for self-care. You know, we kind of need to have this shift, this paradigm shift to thinking, I need self-care in order to do those things. You know, I'm not going to be able to do my homework, take care of the kids, and be present if I'm not taking care of myself. So especially as a graduate student and a student in general, self-care is very important. Whether self-care for you is seeking help from a licensed professional or if it's talking to your friends, or you know, even just something as simple as doing art, you know, whatever works for you to take care of yourself. Mm -hmm. And also pull on the pull on the faculty and the staff, um, because if you notice, if they're professors, if they're they've been through programs, just like you're going through a program, and we may have some advice for you, some tips, some things that helped us get through. We're still alive. We're here, we survived, and <laughs> we're a testament that you can get through a doctoral program and not die. You know, so, so pull on as many staff members as you can. Someone is going to take the time to give you the information or the tip that you need or, or direct you to a calendar or, you know, I did it this way. Just, just sometimes talking and really um, seeking and tapping the ground. You're going to find somebody that's going to be able to give you, you know, what you need. But it's here. It's here because people have survived just like you. <laughs> you will survive. Uh, so representing table 11, uh, we had we talked a lot about next steps that the university can take. Uh, and I wanted to share just a few of the suggestions. Um, some of the other tables have hit some of our other points. Um, to piggyback off table 10, we talked about really wanting to look at folding everyone into the conversation around mental health and also making sure that they're aware of resources and um, something that came up is commuting students um, who might not necessarily feel as connected at times um, or we might not necessarily be targeting um, them with some of our resources. So that was uh, one piece. We also heard from a parent uh, thinking about um, how they could be uh, notified if their child is really struggling with mental illness or mental health symptoms um, and you know basically both in a formal way from the university but also some of the informal ways like Mike was talking about um, if a friend were to reach out to the parent and just kind of pull them into the conversation um, as well as also getting a little bit of support and how to keep that conversation going because as we talked about oftentimes that conversation needs to start early on Let's, those are good points. Can we just quickly sum up what is the legal situation? So if a student is 18 years old, 
Can you tell the parents when they are having trouble or no? Like, where does hiccup come in? <laughs> or what is it? <laughs> FERPA. FERPA. Um, so in the counseling field, there's only um, a few situations that we can break confidentiality. And so a student um, has to identify that they are um, going to kill themselves. And we assess during that to look at a variety of things, means and all of that. But that is a time that we can break confidentiality. All the times up until that, we encourage students to try to get more people on their support, whether it's a grandmother, a parent, a boyfriend, someone that we can have them get on a support team. And so we try to get releases of information for them to sign, allowing us to contact that person. But otherwise, we don't have, we can't do that legally. We're not allowed to. There's, there's a workaround. <laughs> What's the workaround? So, so as a family therapist, the easiest way to get around this whole issue is to not do it yourself, but have the student do it for you. So essentially, you know, uh, working with a student who's struggling, well, who in your f who can support you? And when family becomes who can support you, then it's like, well, should we include that person in this conversation? Oh, I don't want to talk to him about whatever. And it's like, there's ways to artfully work this out such that they are the ones who want to then reach out to their parents. Even if we say, listen, you can do it while you're sitting here in my office. In other words, then you know the conversation actually happened. Um, Again, you're not breaching any confidentiality if you're not the one disclosing the information, but you're part of that conversation so that you can support them through the telling of whatever it is that they want to share. Mm. I've had parent, or I've had kids tell their parents to quit spoiling them. You know, I mean, it's like you can get all kinds of stuff good to come out of this. <laughs> Hi. Um, so I'm just going to try and best I can translate, I think, what the main conversation at our table was. And I think that was around communication and students and staff and faculty feeling a disconnect. So from students feeling like, how do I talk to staff and faculty about these things? Who do I go to? What do I say? How do I get them to hear me? And I know what I saw just at our table, sort of a little microcosm, was that um, staff sort of responding to that and wanting, from what I could see, kind of desperately really to want to help the students and to connect to students. But sort of on both sides, nobody really knowing quite how to do that. I think that um, it's going to be uncomfortable, especially around these topics. Um, but as human beings, we just connect on the human level. I think uh, we all have different roles and different responsibilities, um, and therefore students may believe that uh, faculty or, or teachers will not, uh, or staff members will not um, hear them or understand, um, but I think that we have to force past our, our feeling of resistance and just kind of say, you're more important than us. You know, you're more important than you may walk away from this um, conversation saying, man, the kid gets on my nerves. Why don't you get off my back? It's not about that. I really care about you. And I think as faculty, sometimes we, uh, being a new faculty member, I can say this, sometimes it's knowing that line, like the line of, I'm a counselor, okay? So I love to help people. So, but I'm a professor. So what's my responsibility of, of being that professor, but I don't care, but the professor. So I think that training 
and, and fostering more conversations around this as to what should what do we deem appropriate or what do we deem necessary to save a life, you know, may kind of shift our, our what we perceive in our mind as our boundaries. And when it has to do with saving a life, we may have to cross that boundary of what I perceive the professor should be or the boundaries I may have to save the life of that student or another faculty member or someone I see um, here in Campbell. You know, when I connect with them on a personal level, it, it'll help me guide the conversation that I need to have with them. Mm. Right, you gotta watch your back there. Yeah, I, I mean, I think that you said, again, the time being here seven months, it's just that trying to do is make those connections, right? And so to help educate faculty about what some of the policies, procedures, and ways to help their students are. Um, and recently had met with some just a few weeks ago. But I, I think exactly what Nicole said is, is just saying that you care and that you're there and let's figure this out. Let's walk you over to the counseling services. Let's go over there. Let's do it together. Um, and being a support for them in that way. Um, when I was a peer mentor, one of the things that um, I did with my professor in front of our class of freshmen was that every day before we started class, we would go through and each of us would say something um, good about our week and something bad about our week. And I would do it as the peer mentor, the whole class would do it, and so would the professor. And it really was powerful because you could see that even the professor had bad things about his week and there was stuff going on in his life. And what we saw was that the students were so much more willing to come to us and say, hey, you know how I said that this was happening and that was the bad part of my week? Like, can we talk about it? And they were just so much more comfortable because the professor was a person to them now. They were saying, hey, you have good things in your life. You have some not so great things in your life. So do I. So it really kind of um, doing that, it was so simple. It took maybe like two, three minutes out of our class period, but the impact of that was so powerful and so positive. Mm -hmm. I also, if I may, I used to teach at Temple and before I had children. And I would sometimes just do sort of a casual drop of just saying, you know, oh, I have struggled with anxiety for most of my life. And then I would go on to say something else. So as somebody who's in broadcasting, I would tell my students, because that's what I was teaching them, I would just say, that was really tough and it almost ended my career because I would get to say, you know, my anxiety combined with nerves would just make it so I couldn't talk. And that's difficult when you're trying to be a broadcaster. So just dropping that and not saying any more about it than that, just saying like, you know, and there were ways that I dealt with that and got along. And, you know, if that's something you ever want to talk about, we can talk about that. And then poof, went on to the next thing. And that was something that actually got kids to, to ask me about that. But it was just a very casual drop of like, you know, no big deal, this happened to me. And then I moved on from it. Of course, it was a little bit bigger deal than that. But, you know, I just sort of, it was casual. And I just mentioned it, but I sort of wanted to signal to them, like, we can talk about this if you want. And that's all I'm going to say about it. So very keep it sort of casual. Oftentimes, it seems to work. <laughs> I think we got all the facilitators. No, right one more. Whoa, whoa, there he is. <laughs> what does he know? <laughs> Uh, not to offend my older colleagues, <laughs> although I probably will, I always find it more refreshing to sit and listen to students. Mm -hmm. And one of the things that I heard was the value of the peer mentors. And Kimberly, you've mentioned it several times. I'm wondering, uh, I'm 
assuming that others are naive about this too, what is the level of training that your mentors receive? Because I'm sensing that they're really the, they're working in the trenches. They're the ones that are so often making that first contact maybe, or maybe having a greater ability to observe individuals. So what is that level of training that occurs? Um, so as far as what you're talking about, we don't get any training. Um, it's mostly just information sessions as to what our role as a peer mentor will be, um, our different responsibilities, actually meeting um, the students. But I do think that's a really valuable avenue to pursue moving forward. You know, what if, even if we're not able to educate the entire student body, what if we just educated the peer mentors about the different signs of, you know, struggling with mental illness, the difficulty of transition, you know, coming from a counseling background, I was able to provide this information to my students. I sat them down and I said, hey, you know, most psychiatric illnesses, the, you know, most prevalent period of onset is during your college years, you know, and compounded by the stress, it's likely that you might be experiencing some of these symptoms, you know, but that is not necessarily information that everyone is getting, but imagine if it was. Imagine if, you know, this class that every student has to take when they come to university, imagine if this information was provided because the peer mentors knew and the peer mentors were able to assess students and they were able to pull them aside and say, hey, like, I see that your grades have been slipping. I see that you haven't been showing up to class. You sit here with your head down when you do come. Let's talk about it. So I do think that the peer mentors are really valuable because they bridge the gap between professors and students because they're kind of in that middle role. So that's a really great way to address the issues we're talking about today. Okay. Yeah, and one more thing. Uh, I also had the opportunity to sit at a table where we had somebody that in front of their name is the reverend. And, but it, it posed this question, which is we have individuals that have varying degrees of background in religion, and that is part of their makeup. It's part of their belief system. So I'm wondering when we're facing these kinds of issues, um, to what degree are we able to intersect with religious individuals, you know, whether it's individuals in the ministry or what have you, that can maybe support some of these individuals that are coming to us and part of their concern is coming from their religious background that might have prohibitions about talking about it or more significant taboo. Mm -hmm. What do we have to be able to intersect with individuals in ministry? Sorry. <laughs> um, so we've been developing uh, interfaith clubs and groups on campus out of the Office of Student Engagement. And what we're working toward is um, co-sponsorships with like uh, international studies and other departments on campus just to continue to build up our programs um, and make it more, have more awareness of what we do in spiritual development. Um, we're not a religious institution, so this is something that we have limited buy-in with. Um, However, we are trying to develop, as I said, an interfaith council and try to meet the needs of students um, with wherever they are spiritually. Something else that we've done over the last two semesters is we created a spare, uh, prayer space on campus, which is on the third floor. Um, and also, we're updating our website, and with the integration, we're hoping to promote that more. Um, but I'm available to meet the needs 
of students as far as space development. And I also have the counseling background as well. So we kind of okay. yeah, you know, yeah. coordinate that effort. Yeah, yeah, and that's great to hear because I was worried that I might pose the question that would be that crickets chirping only because it's consistent with the field, right? Mm-hmm. Where we have individuals that um, you know have these kind of concerns yet find it difficult to either share with their counselor or people that are intervening mm-hmm. and simply might be notice the discomfort those individuals have mm-hmm. talking about these things mm-hmm. uh, or those individuals are just naive and I think it was really good for us as we were having that conversation to notice, you know, some of these individuals have some really significant beliefs that are anchored into their background, whether family or their own, you know, beliefs yeah. uh, related to the crickets chirping. Yeah. I, think, I think it's about meeting students where they're at, too. And so having multiple options and avenues for them to get the support that they need is incredibly important. I think all of us that are on the mental health side of things and everybody that I've spoken to that have been more on the religious spiritual side of things would agree that the we need each other um, that there are issues that pop up and and sort of the old saying you know there's there's Christian counselors and there's counselors who are Christian and you could change Christian with whatever you know religious faith you want to say but um, it's about how do you support somebody in those contexts and sometimes you know somebody's living on the mental health side of things you, you need that level of support from somebody um, in the religious community and vice versa. And so I think it's, it's about collaboration there too. I think one thing I just want to comment real quick on the question that your table posed around training for peer mentors. Again, being here for seven months, it's an important piece. It's been a learning curve, being able to understand what the environment and community is here. But it's a great point and definitely on the radar because of how important they are as well as our veterans life staff and other student leaders on our campus. And we've done it in Center City for years, so we're working with, with East Falls to build up from there. Okay, um, we've I don't think it's necessary to do a wrap-up because you guys have covered <laughs> this. I have to thank the panel. I, I told them in the middle, I used the word awesome, oh, yeah, and I really round of applause because they've been incredible. <laughs> I would also like to thank uh, our, peer, our, our table mentors, uh, the facilitators who did an amazing job, and I'd like to actually thank the program, Vinny's program, uh, who have put so much time and effort into this today, so thank you. Uh, On your tables is a survey. Uh, We would love for you to answer it, and we will not give you any food if you do not answer it, and we will check. (laughs) So fill that out. I appreciate all your help and everyone who made this uh, a great event. Thank you all for coming. And on the back of the programs are resources. Make sure that we point that out. Yes, all those resources are on the back, of, and you may like some of them and want to suggest that we go forward with them. That's why you have that comment section in your uh, survey. So please let us know what you're thinking. Thank you. Thank you.